The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I think a lot of people just don't know or they don't think that far into the future or, you know, some people don't believe it's happening, <laughs> you know. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. If you don't believe in climate change, I have a great beachfront condo to sell you on the Miami coast, but you'll need to act fast. Prices for so-called open water properties in southern Florida have more than doubled in the past year. There's little sign of the market slowing down, despite the prospect of not just rising interest rates, but let's face it, rising sea levels that could put these properties underwater by 2050. Bloomberg opinion columnist and longtime Miami resident Jonathan Levin went looking for any sign that Florida house buyers were paying any attention to the rising flood risks for these super desirable seaside properties. Stick around for his surprising on the beach report. But before that, we have an exclusive interview with Isabel Schnabel, who, as a member of the executive board of the European Central Bank, has been more focused than most on the practical effects of climate change and how central banks and governments should respond. Thank you, Isabel, for doing this. Now, I know you don't want to talk about what's going to happen to interest rates next week or next month, and some of our listeners will be disappointed to hear that, but I suspect many will be delighted that we're we're lifting our heads up from that to, to longer-term issues, and there's no bigger one than climate change. So... Before we get into the economics of this, I just wanted to start by asking you why you, as a senior figure on the ECB, seem to have been the one who's invested most time in thinking through and giving speeches about the economic implications of climate change. So, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Stephanie, for, for having me here today. It's it's such a pleasure to uh, to be part of your uh, very nice podcast series. And uh, I'm also delighted uh, to talk about the, the topic of climate change. And uh, as you said, I've uh, spent quite some time uh, thinking about uh, this uh, topic and thinking about uh, what it implies for central banks and monetary policy. Uh, maybe it's not fair to say that that uh, I'm the main person driving it. I think the, it would be fair to say that it was actually President Lagarde who uh, who started to put a lot of emphasis uh, on climate change here at the ECB. And I must say that I actually went through a learning curve. So uh, when I joined the uh, ECB, I think I was a bit more skeptical regarding the role uh, of uh, central banks with regard to the climate change. And my uh, my thinking has developed quite, uh, quite profoundly uh, over time. Uh, by understanding uh, better, I mean, first of all, of course, the massive impact that climate change is going to have on the economy, uh, but also the important role that uh, central banks may uh, actually play. So you, you gave us a speech um, that I thought was, was particularly interesting uh, in March of this year, where you were thinking about the impact on inflation of climate change 
and the sort of there's there's three different price shocks that you felt we were sort of looking at down the track and indeed already experiencing to some extent. Do you want to just quickly um, run through those those dynamics? Let me maybe first um, make one very uh, important point, which is that I think it's very likely that after the green transition has been accomplished, energy prices uh, are actually likely to be lower than they are today. So uh, what we are talking about uh, when we are talking about these inflationary effects is really uh, what's going to happen uh, during the transition. And uh, during the transition, it's uh, it's quite clear that uh, prices of carbon-intensive energy sources are going to rise. And this is, of course, also necessary in order to uh, accelerate uh, the, uh, the the green transition. And uh, as you rightly said, I, I, I tried to uh, to better understand the different types of uh, inflation that we may experience due to the green transition uh, in the time to come. And the the first type I mentioned was uh, what I called climate inflation. So this would be the type of inflation caused by climate change itself. So due to climate change, uh, there's likely to be a much higher frequency of natural disasters. So of flooding, wildfires, droughts, And uh, this, for example, will have quite some impact on food prices. And I think this is no longer like a distant prospect, but we are already uh, seeing that. And so this climate inflation is what is coming from climate change itself. And our economists looking at this have also, the the other part of that is it becomes more volatile. You could have just an increase in the volatility of inflation as well from these kind of shocks. That's uh, Mm. certainly true as well. Uh, the second type, and uh, I would say this is, I mean, quantitatively the the most important one, uh, is what I called uh, fossilflation. This is also what we are basically <laughs> seeing at the moment, further reinforced uh, by uh, by the war. Um, and uh, fossilflation, in the end, is uh, a reflection of our excessive reliance. Uh, on fossil energy sources uh, in the past. And then finally, the third type of inflation I mentioned uh, was uh, what I call greenflation. And greenflation is related to the uh, expansion of renewable energy sources. And it's uh, important to acknowledge that this expansion will lead to a, a very high demand for certain metals and uh, and certain minerals. So um, good examples are lithium, uh, copper, uh, nickel, uh, cobalt, uh, which uh, which are also in short supply. So uh, uh, especially if uh, if everybody or 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 many are trying uh, to accelerate the green transition, this will create a uh, huge demand for those metals and, and minerals and imply increases uh, in, in their prices. And this then leads to greenflation. And if you if you already now look at some of those uh, prices, uh, this is quite striking. So I think if I remember correctly, the, the price of lithium 
has uh, increased by a factor of 10 since the beginning of 2021. So, uh, and, and this is, I mean, at the moment, I would say most of what we're seeing is still fossilflation, but going forward, uh, the share of reinflation is likely to become more important. Thank you for for being so 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 clear about those things. How concerned are you that people will begin, with some justice, to associate the move to uh, a zero carbon economy with a serious inflation problem? Well, there's uh, there's certainly a political issue there, so that uh, that won't make uh, the, uh, the the transition uh, easier. But we should be aware of the fact that all the research that uh, I know shows that um, the uh, that the green transition uh, is the easier the earlier it, it it really starts. So if we if we move too late, uh, it can become very disruptive. And, Aren't uh, we the, moving too late? <laughs> Aren't we already there? Yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's fair to say that that we are already moving uh, too late. I mean, if we uh, if we look at uh, the the Paris goals, um, um, I, I think it's it's actually uh, quite striking that even in the year 2020, so at the height of the COVID uh, pandemic, where the global economy was partly shut down. Uh, the reduction in carbon emissions was was not uh, enough. I mean, relative to what is needed in order to achieve uh, our goals. So uh, basically, we would need to achieve more every single year than uh, what happened in in 2020. And I think this this shows us uh, that we are already uh, very late. And uh, I, I think uh, I mean uh, waiting makes uh, everything uh, much worse. Uh, much more costly in uh, economic terms. And of course, uh, that is one of the major challenges um, uh, for governments to explain to the population that the economic costs are going to be much higher if we wait uh, even longer. There's a burden that goes on central banks, and we might talk a bit about that. How, How should a central bank like the European Central Bank uh, approach these various kinds of inflation that we now see coming down the track. Um, but is there a more sort of interventionist or certainly a more expensive role for for governments in responding to this these transitional issues? So let me be very clear on this, that it's clearly a governments who are in the driver's seat. So there, there can be no doubt about that. And their major task is to uh, accelerate uh, the the green transition. And uh, most economists would agree that uh, the ideal instrument uh, would be a carbon price and ideally even at a global level. Uh, And in addition, uh, there will be the need uh, for massive investment, public investment, but then of course, uh, also uh, private investment. So uh, I think governments have a very important role to play here. We should also uh, not forget that certain parts of the population are likely uh, to suffer more from the energy price increases uh, that uh, that we discussed than uh, others. And so the uh, so uh, governments also have the role to uh, protect uh, the most vulnerable 
parts of our society who spend a much larger share of their income of, of, for energy. And uh, at the same time, all the measures have to be designed in a way that uh, they don't destroy the incentives. Because as I said, the higher energy prices are of course also needed in order to make sure that um, energy demand is going to decrease, that there is an incentive to innovate, um, to become more uh, energy efficient uh, in, in all of that. And so uh, if governments, for example, simply subsidize uh, energy prices, uh, this would certainly go in the wrong direction uh, because this would destroy those very important price signals which are needed in order to accelerate the transition. If we are looking at potentially a need for much for more government spending on this and certainly more government investment and overall in the private and the public sector, a lot more investment and on a quite reasonably speedy timescale um, to support this transition. Is that, I mean, that sounds to me like an environment for higher long-term interest rates compared to where we've been in the last few years. Do you think, do you think that's right? Are we sort of structurally moving or at least going to have a period period um, as this transition is achieved where interest rates could be significantly higher, long-term interest rates, not necessarily the ones you control? Yes, so I, I actually share that view that uh, we may now enter a, a very different uh, macroeconomic environment from where we were. I mean, we had this, uh, this long-term uh, trend of declining uh, interest rates, uh, which was also related to the fact that uh, there was an abundance of savings on the one hand and a relatively sluggish uh, investment demand. And if we if we look at the uh, at the massive investment uh, that is needed, as I said, both on the public and on the private side, and this is not just the green transition, uh, but that's uh, that's also I mean, as we know now, it's for example defense uh, and and other uh, issues. Uh, then uh, I would agree that this will uh, tend uh, to lead to uh, higher interest rates going forward. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It seems like if you're, for a big chunk of the population, you might say, okay, my mortgage rate's gone up partly because of the transition to, to zero um, carbon. My cost of my petrol and my energy has gone up. Um, the world has just got a lot more expensive and it's all down to these greens. Um, yes, so that's, that's another interesting question. So maybe be, before we talk about the distributional effects, I think one of the implications of, uh, of what we discussed is that we need to put many more resources into investment, which implies that, uh, that, that there is in the end less consumption. And already that, even before looking, uh, before looking at the distributional effects, 
are already that could create uh, a political. Great. So you've added another one to the list. The the, the high uh, need for investment uh, implies that uh, that consumption growth is uh, being to be uh, slower. But uh, I would say that of course climate change itself is something which uh, creates a lot of uh, inequality. I mean, we know that different parts of the world uh, are affected very differently by uh, by climate change. And unfortunately, it seems that the poorest parts of the world uh, are affected uh, more, uh, more strongly. And I mean, even within Europe, uh, one can see that, that different parts are uh, affected uh, uh, very differently. And, and so it's not just climate policies, which uh, kind of may have uh, distributional effects, but it's also climate change itself. But on the, on the climate policies, I think in order uh, to, uh, to get, uh, um, I mean, the agreement uh, from the population to all these policy measures, it's absolutely crucial that, uh, that there is a certain degree of compensation. I mean, there is, uh, there is a, a debate uh, going on, uh, for example, when it comes to carbon taxes, how, uh, how to use the proceeds from that. And uh, given that, that carbon taxes uh, tend to be uh, uh, regressive, so they affect the poorer parts of the population more uh, than uh, than than the better uh, and the better off. It's clear that at least part, if not all, of those revenues uh, should be used for uh, compensatory measures. Again, as I stressed before, this has to be done in a way that the incentives uh, uh, are not destroyed. So that is, so some people say it could simply be a, a, a pro capita redistribution, which then would actually um, benefit the, the poorer people more than the, uh, than the richer ones. Now this is, it's, it's easy for a central banker to say when all of these policies would actually have to be by governments. And in a European level, you don't even have necessarily joint uh, fiscal policy um, to, to do those things. As a central bank and thinking about your basic remit, which is inflation and or controlling inflation, and you're looking at these uh, various elements that could make the world more uh, expensive over time um, and potentially also have produced more volatility in inflation. Does that, I mean, how much does that change the way should it change the framework for policy over the next few years? Will you, you know, should you be more tolerant of, of higher inflation because it's part of this transitional green challenge? Yes, yeah, so this is uh, really the most important question uh, that we will have to answer over the coming years. So the, the first thing that we will have to acknowledge is that it's very likely that the nature of energy price shocks has changed. So in, in previous times, I mean, the standard prescription uh, would, would have been that we would look uh, through energy price shocks because uh, they were considered uh, to be uh, temporary and, uh, and short-lived. So uh, the idea being that uh, if we reacted uh, to such a shock that would uh, kind of normalize after a short period of time anyway, then 
we would uh, uh, possibly then uh, weaken the economy uh, at a time when uh, the, this, this price shock has already disappeared. And uh, therefore, the standard prescription was to look through such energy price shocks. But now, I would argue that the, that the nature of uh, these shocks has changed, that, uh, that there is a more persistent or more structural component uh, to these uh, energy price shocks so that we have uh, um, a, a prolonged uh, increase in energy prices over a longer period of time. As I said, I mean, over the period of the transition, which actually can be quite long. So we are not talking about five years, but we are talking about possibly much longer um, uh, periods. And uh, in such a situation, it's no longer clear that we can afford to just uh, look through uh, these um, in inflationary uh, effects because there is the risk that uh, inflation expectations uh, are getting uh, de-anchored. Uh, which uh, which uh, threatens uh, the credibility uh, of the uh, of the central bank, and uh, when it comes to energy, this is uh, a particularly high risk uh, because people go to the gas station, let's say, quite often. They they really see what's happening there, and therefore it has quite a strong impact uh, on their inflation uh, expectations. And of course, if there is a de-anchoring of inflation expectations, I mean, this can give rise to a wage uh, price spiral. This becomes uh, all the more likely uh, the, the longer uh, the, the high inflation uh, period uh, persists. And that then for us becomes uh, very dangerous. And this is why I think that we actually cannot uh, look through uh, this persistent price increase that may happen in the course of the green transition. There has always been an argument that said over time, the look through strategy was actually rather bad for, for workers. Uh, people have to face that sort of immediate hit to their real incomes from this spike in prices and not have any kind of compensation in the form of slower, lower inflation down the track. You just end up with lower wages in real terms. Yes. And the central bank has not been battling on your behalf to, to preserve your real purchasing power. I mean, that's a valid point because, I mean, as I said, I mean, if energy prices, you know, go up and down, I mean, it kind of averages out. Mm. But if you have this persistent increase, then uh, uh, what happens is precisely what you're saying. And I think it's not realistic to think that then uh, wages will not at some point react. I mean, of course, they will react at some and point. And just you, you talk about having a different approach now to, to particularly the energy-driven inflation because it's likely to be more long-lasting. And clearly, when you look at the US, they have had inflation, which was not just driven by energy, uh, and but was kind of fundamentally kind of misdiagnosed. And they are now, by their own admission, more or less, having to sort of play catch up in responding to that inflation. When you think about how are we going to respond to this environment, which might have structurally higher inflation, um, do you feel you will have to be more responsive um, and have a less gradual approach to, to raising interest rates over time than you might have done in the past um, on the basis of seeing the US experience? 
But of course, the U.S. experience is in uh, several respects different. I think the major difference is that uh, the U.S. had uh, this very strong fiscal impulse, which was much larger than uh, what we have seen uh, in the euro area. And um, I mean, in particular, you also see that um, that wage developments uh, look already very different uh, from what we are seeing in the euro area, where uh, wages wage growth is still quite sluggish, and you may say surprisingly so. Um, I, I don't think that it's going to stay like that. So this is certainly going to to pick up. And I think I mean what we can certainly uh, learn from the U.S. is uh, that it's uh, very important to uh, react early enough. So that is uh, that is very important. There's a lot of factors that have kept inflation and interest rates low over the last 20 years. You said you talked about there's been, there was an enormous amount of savings relative to the demand for investment globally. There was potentially uh, the demographic factors that were pushing down um, long-term interest rates, which I think we know now globally certainly are going to go into reverse because we're starting to have a declining working age population. When you think of all that, do you share the view that those are now going into reverse, that we're looking at a higher interest rate environment? It's uh, quite difficult to predict such things, but I think they're very good arguments uh, for uh, what you describe. I mean, we've had this long period of uh, disinflationary shocks. And uh, of course, one of the main factors uh, driving that uh, was the, the the growing role of uh, China uh, in the global e- economy, uh, which uh, certainly had a disinflationary uh, effect globally. And um, I, I agree that it's quite likely that some of that is going to reverse. And uh, the, the war, which we haven't discussed much so far, uh, I think is another factor which uh, may actually uh, speed up uh, this change. I mean, what uh, what we are seeing is that uh, a very uh, close uh, reliance on particular uh, countries uh, uh, is is very dangerous. I mean, en- energy the the energy reliance on Russia uh, in Europe is, I think, a very good example. And uh, so it's very clear that this will have profound uh, effects uh, on the future design on supply chains. Um, we already discussed the, uh, the green transition, um, which uh, will have uh, a major impact. And, um, and so uh, I think there are good arguments to see uh, a fundamental change in the macroeconomic environment going forward. And one that becomes very much more challenging for for central banks, um, or certainly raises raises new challenges. Finally, I guess I should ask you: you know, you're you are doing um, an educational job with these speeches and this interview, thinking about the um, the dynamics of these shocks. And you know, as we've as anyone paying any attention to this interview will hear, most of the news is not very good. It's some difficult, un- inconvenient truths which get more and more inconvenient um, by by the month. Um, 
how would you rate the polit- politicians and and the governments of of Europe in helping voters understand these difficult inconvenient truths do you think we've we've we're getting any better at explaining the challenges the trade-offs involved from a at a political level so i think that uh, in general uh, there is far too less focus on uh, on on climate change in particular still i mean if we look at how much attention was given first to the pandemic and and then uh, to to the war which of course is is entirely uh, appropriate one could be surprised that not a comparable uh, a comparable degree of attention is given to the issue uh, of uh, of climate change so i think um uh, politicians so far have not been uh, very good at conveying uh, the the proper uh, sense of urgency that we're actually facing so it really seems that bad things have to happen in order to convince the the um, the politicians to become more uh, proactive also in their communication and as we discussed i mean there will be some opposition to everything that is going to be needed so it won't be easy so communication will play a fundamental role in order uh to make the green transition uh, a success and i think much more will have to be done and people like larry summers who we hear from a lot on this podcast and indeed the economist magazine who say that central bankers should get back to their knitting it's the english expression that should stop going on about these things that are not part of their remit what do you say yeah i uh, i find that misguided honestly because i mean we discussed how climate change affects inflation so how could central banks ignore that i think it's simply not appropriate climate change has fundamental implications for our primary mandate and so i think it's absolutely clear that uh, that central banks have uh, have to look at this what it implies for inflation what it implies Uh, also uh, for the design uh, of our uh, operations uh, you could say that uh, by the treaties we are actually obliged uh, to do that because we are supposed uh, to support the general economic policies of the eu and uh, this certainly means that we have to make sure that whatever we do is paris aligned dr isabel schnabel member of the executive board of the ecb thank you very much Thank you Stephanie. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor Amazon, official airline Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com/greenfestival. Now, it's no surprise maybe that politicians don't always want to face up to the inconvenient implications of climate change. But you'd think anyone spending a few million dollars on a beachfront property in Florida would want to think about those implications very carefully. 
especially the risk that a chunk of that property could end up part of the ocean. But it seems there's not a great appetite for inconvenient truths in Miami either. Here's Bloomberg Opinion columnist and former Miami bureau chief Jonathan Levin. There are people who think that Miami, over time, will be covered with water. And a lot of people worry about that. I don't know. Living here, obviously, I think that yes, obviously, that's a possibility. Or technology could help prevent that from happening because there are so many economic interests in this city. That's realtor Maria Luisa Singh of Keys Company, whose office sits on Brickle Key, a man-made island lined with palm trees with views of the glassy towers in Miami's financial district. Like many others in South Florida, Singh is optimistic that climate change won't wreak havoc on this global tourist mecca and believes that money and human ingenuity could be enough to prevent a worst-case scenario. It's something that's on people's mind that is possible and that you have to stay on top of it. For that reason, not everyone is willing to invest in Miami because of that concern. But those of us that are here assume the risk. Here in Miami, a supercharged real estate market is fueling soaring property values and pricing many people out of the market. And there's little evidence that the masses are heeding the potentially disastrous effects of climate change, which is expected to increase major flooding fivefold by 2050. In fact, a recent study led by researchers at the U.S. home finance giant Freddie Mac found that homes directly exposed to sea level rise in coastal Florida command no discount at all over those that aren't. For now, many consumers here are left to wonder on their own about how wise it is to buy a home in a coastal community like this, knowing that climate change is on the horizon. And what is a reasonable price to pay? Among them is Kayla Zobel, a 28-year-old who recently moved to South Florida to work with the county government. It's sort of a hazard to live in places near water and stuff, and prices in Miami are already high, so... Uh-huh. and sea levels will continue to keep rising. One key reason rising seas aren't priced into Miami's real estate is that people simply aren't aware of the risks, technically known as information asymmetry. Florida and many of the U.S.'s most vulnerable states have few or no laws on the books requiring sellers to share information about flood risk. The Natural Resources Defense Council puts Florida among 21 jurisdictions with a failing grade in a recent assessment of flood risk disclosure rules. Here's Joel Scotta, a water and climate attorney with the NRDC. I think a big problem with um, understanding flood risk in the United States is that there is not uh, good transparency, both at the federal information level as well as the information that uh, a seller might have when it comes to disclosing potential flood risks. So to a home buyer. Um, and that needs to change. Both uh, the federal government uh, through FEMA, as well as states uh, by changing their disclosure laws, um, should require more information to be shared about flood risk so buyers are informed uh, and can make good decisions about where to live and how to live. 
Even in the states that require flood risk disclosure, the assessment of risks is often based on backward-looking metrics, such as whether a home has been flooded in the past. And the warnings can be thrust upon home buyers at the 11th hour as they're signing dozens of other documents at a real estate closing. That means many people are pouring their savings into properties without necessarily understanding the risks to their investment. As Abigail Fleming, an environmental justice lawyer and University of Miami School of Law professor told me, it's often low-income communities of color that are most susceptible. You know, knowledge is power. So knowledge of these risks is really necessary for better decision-making. Um, but I think these uh, that information needs to be coupled with actions, obviously, to disclose and communicate flood risks, but also those must be supplemented with resources and options for adaptation measures. Fortunately, some advocates are stepping up to make people more aware of the risks they're taking on when buying property along Florida's coasts. The real estate marketplaces Realtor.com and Redfin have teamed up with nonprofit First Street Foundation to provide flood risk ratings for properties on their websites. And First Street's founder, Matthew Ebby, said he would like to extend the resource to more government entities. Meanwhile, Hawaii just became the first state to require C-Rise disclosures in housing transactions, effective on May 1st. Still, the U.S. has a long way to go before consumers aren't left in the dark. The Freddie Mac study did find that homes that are already in designated floodplains command some discount, but that doesn't mean they're pricing in sea level rise. Here's study author and Freddie Mac senior economist Ajita Atreya to explain. We find that homes directly exposed to projected sea level command no discount over those that aren't exposed. Uh, there were discounts for homes in FEMA-designated floodplains, but that's probably to offset the cost of flood insurance buyers must carry if the mortgage is financed with a government-backed lender rather than future sea level rise risk considerations. And these findings hold true for primary residences as well as for non-owner-occupied properties that are mostly investment properties. Federal flood maps are still based on backward-looking metrics and fail to reflect the threat of future sea level rise. Also, many other properties that aren't officially in floodplains are nevertheless vulnerable to the shifts expected to take place in the coming decades. Not surprisingly, politicians and their constituents often fight floodplain designations out of concern they will depress the value of properties in their area. But experts say vulnerable states and municipalities should instead take the long view. Give people accurate information about their flood risk so communities can take decisive action. Here's Zobel, the new South Florida resident. I think a lot of people just don't know or they don't think that far into the future or, you know, some people don't believe it's happening, (laughs) you know. that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like the show, please rate it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You can also follow at economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with support from Soma Sadi. Special thanks to Dr. Isabel Schnabel and Jonathan Levin. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg podcast is Francesca Levy. <laughs>